Well, I would like to first start by thanking the library for inviting me to share with you here today. When Emily called me, I kind of almost told her, I think you got the wrong number. <laughs> so I asked her, so how did you get my number and how did you decide to call me? So when she explained and she says, well, there is the issue of health of which I'm interested in anything that affects health by the nature of what I do. And uh, she mentioned issues on global health issues and that's something that is close to my heart. So I say, okay, yes, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> so I'm standing here leading the discussion, not because I'm a climate change expert, but as somebody who is interested in health and so anything that affects health is something of interest to me. Let's get started. What is climate change? How is it changing our planet? And the main thing is how is it changing our health? Now, when we talk about how is it changing our planet, basically how is changing our planet directly or indirectly changes our health. So although I put the two together, they are really kind of intertwined. They are very, very related to each other. And then what can we do about it? So in as far as what is climate change, well, temperatures are increasing. Whether it's over land, in the ocean, over the top of the, over the oceans, there's increase in humidity, there's increase in atmospheric uh, temperature as well, and the glaciers are going down. But also there is this thing that... Uh, the book calls climate yo-yo, so extreme weather conditions. So we see, for example, more hurricanes, more heat spells, more cold, uh, heat waves and cold spells, more drought periods and more periods of rain. Basically, it depends on where you are at what point in time. So you find those extremes as well happening. So it's not just about temperature going up. We also have these extremes. So somebody may say, for example, well, it's so cold, it's colder than normal. How can you be talking about rising temperatures? But that's basically the outer effect of, uh, of the rising temperatures. And the book says that most of this is because of what we do. So what is causing this? So historically we see that when things are going okay without us interfering, generally the Carbon dioxide in the air, which is the air we breathe out, is usually taken by plants because the plants need it for the, to manufacture their food that they need to survive. So with us not cutting the trees, we have enough balance. And with us not kind of pumping more carbon dioxide that, than we need to, there is enough balance as in the plants are able to remove the carbon dioxide from the air and there's enough good balance. But because we are developing, we go into areas which are forested and clear them to develop, whether for agriculture or other forms of development, build cities. Or in developing countries, we use the firewood for cooking. So we are, we've reduced the number of trees that are able to remove the carbon dioxide from the, from the air. So CO2 is carbon dioxide. And so because, as well, we are getting the fossil fuels and burning in our cars, in our planes, in our trains, 
we are pumping more carbon dioxide as, as well in the atmosphere. And so we kind of offset that balance. The trees are not able to consume all that carbon dioxide that we are pumping out anymore. So there's a lot that stays out that the trees are not able to, to take, and yet, because well, we've reduced the number of trees, so there are not as many of them to actually get rid of it. And so the carbon dioxide increases in the atmosphere, and carbon dioxide acts as a greenhouse gas. That means it absorbs the heat that's coming. And so the heat stays in because there's more carbon dioxide to keep the heat. So kind of looking at historic trends, the book looks at the amount of carbon that's being pumped in the atmosphere. In 1990, it was 6 billion tons a year. Today, it's about 10 billion tons. And most of this is from burning fossil fuels. That is the gas we burn in our cars. And then the other uh, 2 billion are from deforestation. So that's basically generally is a, a summary of what's going on in as far as what's causing it. So where is the heat that is being absorbed by the carbon dioxide that's accumulating in the air, where is it going? So a good chunk of it is being taken by the oceans. And when we see a lot of heat being taken by the oceans, we kind of can explain why we are getting lots of events that start from the oceans. Hurricanes, for example. This is because of the warm air that's coming from there. That's bringing that back to us. And then a small chunk of, uh, small fractions of this are being taken by the continents, glaciers in the continents, and a bit of it by the atmosphere, and small bits by the others. But you can see that the oceans are taking quite a big, a big uh, fraction of it. So, well, how is it changing? How is it changing our climate? And well, we've already kind of talked about floods and droughts. I think I probably do not need to kind of belabor that. I think we've seen these, the numbers of these are going up by the decade these days. We are getting more severe droughts and more severe floods depending on where you are. If you hear international news, you hear of villages swept away. You hear of whole towns swept away depending on where you are by either floods and in places like Africa, for example, people are dying of malnutrition because of those extreme weather conditions. Either the floods come and sweep the gardens and there will be no harvest, or there is no rain, and so the, the crops don't do well, and so people have nothing to eat. And then there's the silent killer, the heat waves. Actually, the book says that heat waves kill more people than hurricanes, earthquakes combined just because we don't get to hear. We don't get to hear as in, well, the events are not, somebody will die silently in their own home. So on average, about 1,500 people die in the U.S. every year from heat. So if you are a farmer, you know your livelihood is at stake as well because your animals are probably not going to either survive, or if they survive, they're not going to be producing as much as you expect. And yet you, you survive on how well they perform. If it's a dairy farmer, you expect the, uh, the animals to be producing enough milk. If it's uh, beef hard, you expect that the animals should be growing fast enough that at the right time you should be able to sell them off. 
and well again El Nino and Hurricane over time we are seeing more of these drastic events coming and more seriously so you see the, 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 the graph here begins in 1970 and ends in 2004 and we see these are hurricanes numbers of hurricanes uh, in that period these are kind of five year uh, time periods and we see that Category 1 are actually going down. The number of Category 1s are going down. But look at the number of Category 4 and 5s, how quickly they are rising in number over that time period. So they are coming more frequently and they are getting more powerful because the oceans are getting warmer and kind of they are acting as fuel for, for the hurricanes. The oceans also absorb some of the carbon dioxide that's in the air. It's uh, estimated about 20% of the carbon dioxide that ends up getting pumped out ends up in the ocean. And what that does is the carbon dioxide in the ocean makes the water acidic. And so the water being acidic affects the growth of shellfish. It affects the formation of the shell. So actually the phytoplankton thrive they do very well because they need the carbon dioxide. They grow at the expense of everything else. So the phytoplankton will thrive. There will be too many of them, and that obviously offsets the health of everything else in the ocean. Okay, so here is a, a sample from... Hurricane Katrina. Just kind of looking at... One of the things I said is, if we are looking at changing the planet, we are not talking about changing the planet without its implication on health. So although I'm not here talking about health specifically, we already see from what's going on in Hurricane Katrina, we see the people that were affected, obviously their mental health was affected. So there's a health issue there. And then because, well, there was oil spill as well as a result of the hurricane. And there were molds and toxins that were kind of ended up uh, being released into the environment, which affected people's health. And so during that time, a short while after, there was a syndrome called Katrina cough. And not to mention, you remember the formaldehyde contaminated uh, temporary shelters that the people were given? I don't know. Do you remember that? So that's also events that are coming because of the aftermath of the Katrina that affected health. And then we see this arrow going to Southern Africa on food security. So there was food that was supposed to have been shipped coming from North America going to people in Southern Africa. That had to be delayed. And obviously that must have affected people, people's health down here because the food couldn't be sent down in time for those people that needed it. And obviously because we were not producing enough oil that we needed to keep things going, it affects whatever is going out elsewhere that are producing oil. And so you kind of see how these kind of intertwines and affects kind of one thing affects another, affects another, and kind of start just snowballing. I chose, in as far as impact on business, I only chose the insurance industry. Now, that does not mean that's the only industry that's affected. I obviously couldn't talk about all of them. But in as far as direct effect, for example, of hurricane, that's kind of one of the ones that are directly affected. So at Katrina time, insured property losses were 
61 billion approximately, 61 billion dollars. Now looking back from 1960 to uh, 1960s to 1980s, we see that the losses were about 4 billion per year, and of these, just about 10% of those were insured. However, if you look at in the 1990s, that has gone up to 40 billion, 40 billion dollars a year. And most of those would be insured. So people are becoming wiser. People are insuring their property. And so you know what that does to the insurance industry. They kind of begin to take the heat. And obviously things always go back to everybody else. As in premiums go up and it affects everybody else. As uh, the businesses get affected. Okay, impact on agriculture. This one is not based on current data, but it's based on projections, based on models that have been done. And this was, I think, done by the Pentagon, if I remember correctly. And uh, they kind of assess that years to come, maybe the next decade or so, we are going to be seeing uh, shorter growing periods in the Northeast, and obviously less rain southwest and the south. In Europe, they are predicting there will be really, really serious uh, winter storms. Africa and Asia, more drought and heavy storms. Now, in as far as drought are concerned, there are areas of Africa, places like Egypt, for example, that you've been hearing so much in the news, that most of it is desert. And so they get water from the river. It's the longest river in Africa, River Nile, that is right now becoming a political issue. Basically, almost countries are thinking of going to war because of water. So you can imagine. If we are getting more drought because of climate change and there are people that right now don't have water, it becomes a security issue in a lot of places. And obviously... Heavy storms combined with drought obviously results in famine and malnutrition that will affect a lot of developing, uh, developing countries in Africa and Asia. Okay, so issues on food security even for the developed countries. Here is a study that was done. I kind of picked, what, one of the things I tried to do was kind of to maintain the big picture. The book uses a lot of local examples from their own practical experiences. I just picked maybe one or two that I kind of used, but I kind of wanted us to maintain the big picture. So here is one of the ones that I decided to pick. And here, the interesting thing here is some plants grow faster with high carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere. Now that sounds like good, right? Because, well, if they grow faster, we get more yield. However, the beetles also live longer and lay more eggs. And so they need to feed and they'll feed on those plants that are growing faster. And so basically the balance may flip over in favor of the beetles and in disfavor of the crops. And so kind of we will kind of probably need to decide which crops we will need to grow, which will be probably more resistant to beetle and stuff like that. And not to mention that the plants that grow faster did not provide a lot, of, a lot of nutritious value. And so the beetles need to eat more to get the same amount of nutrition with high carbon dioxide content. 
And the other thing is there are weeds that also grow faster during high carbon dioxide concentration, and so they may kind of outcompete the crops. So there are all kind of those things that come into play. So there may be challenges in us being able to produce enough food to feed ourselves if things continue to go the way they're going. Okay, finally we get to health. You probably noticed that as we were doing impact on planet, we actually talking about health as well. So this is just kind of summing it up. And as far as direct impact on health, we've already talked about heat waves. But I think if you live in Knoxville, you probably will agree that air is probably not as good as it was 10, 20 years ago. Do we all agree? Mm. Yeah. And we have lots of issues with allergies, asthma, and stuff. And that basically, because of the air quality is worsening, because of high carbon dioxide concentration in the air, yeah, it's making us sick. And we have of the ragweed tends to grow faster with high carbon dioxide concentration. And so we are getting more ragweed, and that is making us even more sick. It's estimated one in ten Americans suffer from ragweed allergies. I wonder what the the number would be for Knox County or Knoxville. Because when I got here, I was told this is the the allergy capital. (laughs) So I don't know whether the number is about that or it's higher. And obviously there are the indirect uh, effects as well. Well, things that I have not talked about, so many of them, fires. The dry it is because of uh, periods of drought, more fires, obviously more fires, more pollution, more property damage, more mental health issues, and kind of the cycle continues. Infectious diseases. I just kind of picked a few. And cholera kind of seems to be on top of the list, especially when there are issues on weather events. Extreme weather events, uh, drop down in sanitation, and so people cannot get proper clean water to drink. That comes down. The other one that kind of is becoming an issue even in the U.S. is potential emergence of, or re-emergence of malaria. Because it's getting warmer, the mosquito that transmits malaria, Anopheles, potentially would be able to come back and survive nicely because it's getting warmer and conditions allow it. Basically, the Anopheles mosquito cannot survive if temperatures are below 61 Fahrenheit. It can't survive. It can't breed. So it needs temperature like from 64 to maybe 104. If it is more than 104, they get cooked. So we need kind of temperatures in that range. Now, generally, the Anopheles mosquito survives for just about two to three weeks. doesn't survive very long. Now, the parasite that transmits, uh, the parasite that causes malaria needs a certain period of time to mature inside the mosquito. If it's cooler, like temperatures about 64, it needs almost eight weeks to develop inside the mosquito before the mosquito can transmit it to a person. Eight weeks. So temperatures about 64, eight weeks. If temperatures go to about 86, if temperatures 86, it needs only one week. So you see how quickly temperature changes things. So it's only one week to develop completely in mosquito. And so the mosquito has a long time to take it around, to share it with people that can get infected before it dies. So if it's very cool, 
it doesn't have enough time to mature to transmit. If it's warm, it transmits faster and for longer. One mosquito transmits faster and for longer. So, and that applies to a lot of other diseases. I can't go through each of these, but generally, as the planet gets warmer, for these, what I'm calling vector-borne diseases, vectors are animals that are able to transmit infection without themselves getting sick. So mosquitoes get the parasite transmitted to us, but they never suffer from malaria. So all these are diseases that are transmitted in that way. Some of them are by bugs, some of them are by snails. But generally, if we are thinking about global warming, we know chances are some of these diseases may be coming back to places like here, which diseases we currently may not have, or we have them at very low levels. And studies have also shown that extreme weather conditions increases uh, the frequency that those things will come. This is a picture. This guy is called Andrew Githeko. He's a Kenyan doctor. And I pick him as one of the case studies to, to share with you because the authors go along, uh, talk about him quite a bit, his work. He's doing work in Kenya on climate change and its relationship to malaria. Now, generally in Kenya, malaria will occur at low elevation because low elevation is warmer than high elevation. So the lowlands will have malaria, Typically, the highlands will not have malaria. But this is changing now. The areas which 10 years ago, 20 years ago, he did not expect to find people with malaria, now he is getting people with malaria. Just kind of showing the impact of, it's getting warmer even in the higher, higher altitude areas which used not have malaria. So basically, the, the take-home message is, Diseases that used to only occur in warmer areas are now moving to the places which used to be typically cold. Now they support uh, development of, of these diseases and their parasites. So here is a quote that I, I kind of picked from, from the book. This is uh, Giteko talking, his first scary malaria epidemic. He says, patients come in, some need blood transfusion, they are mad, and you need to strap them to the bed. These are patients, you have to strap them to the bed. He's a medical doctor, by the way. There's nowhere to put them. You put them outside and it's raining. Infrastructure, so poverty basically only makes things worse. You've got people under the bed, others are yelling. You can't go home, you can't get tired, the morgue is full. That kind of just breaks my heart. So, yeah, you're a medical doctor, you go to work, and you can't go home because, well, if you go home, you're leaving people to die behind you. And in some of these facilities, there may be only one doctor in the whole hospital. Now, this happens, these outbreaks happen in the highland areas, the areas which typically are not supposed to have malaria. If they get it, it's that bad. In the areas where the disease is usually there, those people usually have immunity, so they don't get as serious a disease. So that's kind of the population that we have here. We have not been exposed to malaria. So if it ever came, we would get epidemic because we don't have any resistance to it. That's how bad it gets. And that applies to a lot of other diseases. Okay, what do we do about it? I've kind of divided this into policy, 
community and individual. So beginning with policy, I see that quotation from Dr. Obama, I don't know, four or five years ago. Uh, he said that the nation that leads the world in creating new sources of clean energy will be the nation that leads the 21st century global economy. Very true. I don't know how much progress we've made in that. By the way, I hear China is trying to make really great strides in doing alternative energy. They're kind of really trying to place themselves there. And I kind of already said that we basically have had pushbacks from interest groups, and it's an issue of survival, I guess. And just as an example, from a policy level, a number of groups mentioned in the book have actually called for action. We talk about American Medical Association, American Nurses Association, American Academy of Pediatricians, Pediatrics, and the Joint Commission uh, by The Lancet. The Lancet is one of the uh, top uh, international science journals. So they all are calling that we got to do something because of this, because it's affecting our health. So one of the things that Paul advances in the book is we need to create new rules for people to work with, especially companies and businesses. And then with the new rules, we need to create new institutions to implement those rules and foresee what, what's going on. And obviously, it needs funds to kind of put all that together so that we move, moving forward, we should have a, a low-carbon economy where we are emitting less carbon dioxide in the air. And this is kind of the model he, he proposes. So starting with smart, cleanly powered grid, power grid, where it is being supplied by solar, wind, and geothermal. That's basically geothermal is getting heat from the Earth's core. And going into Healthy Cities Initiative, where thinking about green buildings, basically buildings that are energy efficient. Rooftop gardens, I don't know whether that is more of a statement than an impact, <laughs> the rooftop gardens. Open spaces, bike lanes, walking paths, and obviously think about if a city is growing, we need to be thinking about smart growth, so that if we are growing, we kind of need to be thinking about all these things. Uh, public transit, which I think we got lots to do in as far as public transit. We, we have to drive our cars in a lot of places. If there was more public transit, maybe some of us would be opting to, to use public transit. First, to save money, and two, to save the environment. And then he kind of has this big idea of having everything plug in, including planes. But at least if we started where we are right now and have more cars getting plugged in, that would be a place to start. But this is his big picture of where we need to be going. So tighter energy policy. And then he talks about net metering. And net metering is basically if you have your a solar panel in your home, sometimes your energy meter is running backwards so that if the sun is nice outside, instead of you consuming electricity, you're actually selling electricity back to the grid so that maybe at the end of the month you find that you actually have zero money to pay. If we, we get into doing that, that would be excellent. Obviously, more fuel-efficient cars. And then there's the cap, cap and trade system, where basically is different regions have different limits on how much carbon dioxide they can spew out, and then you buy certificates to those. So that if you want to spew more carbon dioxide, you buy more. And then over time, 
there are fewer of those certificates to sell. And so if you still want to spew more, you pay more to get it. So that would over time help reduce the amount of carbon dioxide we are sending into the atmosphere. But with that kind of there is a provision that you can kind of give out some carbon dioxide, but if you do good somewhere, like go plant trees in Honduras, then that counts as something good. So you can pollute in some neighborhood in Knoxville and go and plant trees in Honduras. <laughs> so that's a loophole that would need to be worked out. And in some places, like in Canada and Germany, there is pay as you drive for insurance. So that if you drive more, you pay more premium. If you drive less, you pay less. I think I ever paid that when I lived in Canada. So those are kind of things that would kind of help us save money as well as uh, make the environment better. And banks, other financial institutions would need to kind of put a bit more money into supporting projects that are green. More companies that are starting solar power, if they could get loans and stuff to kind of help them, or wind projects to help them get started. And farmers need to make a few changes in as far as what to plant and when to plant. Communities. Generally, the cities need to be a little more conserving and less polluting. The cities, generally, the ideology is the cities should be places where somebody wants to be in. You know that when you go out, you breathe easy. Okay? So, so that with, goes with smart growth. In as far as what kind of buildings going forward, what kind of building permits are we going to give? Stringent building codes, energy efficiency, and stuff like that. And obviously, make the place walkable and rideable. You should be able to ride your bike if you want to going forward. I guess we still have lots of work to do there, don't we? And obviously, open spaces that people can go out to play. Grid-wise, this was from a project. Basically, it was a study. And what they did was they, plug, they put computer chips on appliances, household appliances, like refrigerator, a dishwasher, uh, air conditioning unit. And what they did was basically the appliances would communicate with the electric grid and you could either set your system to maximum comfort or maximum energy efficiency or somewhere in between. And so depending on whether you're using electricity during peaks, peak periods or not, the appliances communicate with the grid, and the grid will tell the appliances that, you know, right now there are lots of people that need energy. And so if you are in maximum energy saving, you will not want to be getting a lot of energy at that time. So, for example, if there are three houses, all of them need to boil, boil some water, heat some water. And one, some are set in maximum comfort, some are energy saving. Peak period. They get information from the grid... And they say, okay, right now I can only support one house. Of the three, I can only, the amount of energy I have now, I can only support one house. So the energy will go to the one of maximum comfort. The other ones will not get the energy at that time. But they will also pay a premium price for it at that time. So it's basically like they are auctioning the energy. And it's all done automatically. And you can sit in your office and see what's going on in your house. So that was a study that was done, I think, in Washington and Oregon. So that would be a nice system to have. 
And this is what they call a city of the future, where there is, we have the renewable clean energy here, central, and then we have a local system, maybe uses renewable and natural gas, and basically they feed off of each other. You can see that the house uses heat pumps, but also has a solar and has a skylight there to save on lighting, and the house is able to send as well as receive energy. So energy goes back and forth. So sometimes you're generating and selling to the grid, sometimes you're getting from the grid depending on what's going on. So that's basically the picture they have, uh, city of the future. And for us, what can we do as individuals? Obviously we need to kind of make some decisions. Where do we want to live? What kind of house do we want to live in? Obviously maybe consider more energy efficient houses. How far do we want to commit? Do you want to drive for two hours, three hours, one hour? Obviously, that has a bearing on your pocket as well as on the environment. And what kind of technologies we buy, and that obviously ranges from cars to lots of other things, household appliances, energy-efficient appliances. And what kind of food we eat? They encourage, try to buy local, in which case transportation and burning of gas to bring the food to you is not there and maybe by organically grown, so that chemicals that have to be produced in factories that spew out carbon dioxide are not being used in the food. And that's pretty much it. Thank you for listening to Brown Bag Green Book, a lunchtime series of book discussions about environmental sustainability. To hear other podcasts, please visit www.knoxlib.org.